Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Hi Ed, I'm grand, thanks. How are you? I'm good. How are you feeling being the kind of permanent, well not permanent, but you know, like long-term replacement host for Matt while he has his house completely torn down and rebuilt from the ground up? As the permanent temporary guest host, (laughs) I feel very welcome. Uh, I am in awe of Matt doing very grown-up sounding things Mm. and I hope that he does I hope that he has a great time (laughs) doing them (laughs) no I'm grand I'm getting quite comfy in this chair I have to say thanks for providing it for me nice nice wing back (laughs) I feel esteemed good yeah that those are all the the things we aim for on this show it's very august we do we do sit here with pipes just so everyone (laughs) knows we sit here with pipes and and smoking jackets there's yeah, a, there's a charcuterie board as well. Yeah, and uh, there's a there's a houseboy who brings in just kind of glasses of whiskey, keeps topping it up for us. It's basically snuffbox, is what I'm trying to yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> That's our setup, in case anyone hadn't guessed. Just across across an ocean. Audio snuffbox is our <laughs> tagline. Uh, the new tagline for the <laughs> briefly rebooted version of the show that we're producing right now. But but yes, uh, this is all a way of saying that Matt uh, is going to be away for a little longer than we had intended because the house that he and his wife have bought needs a little more work doing to it because uh, than they had realised because when they were shown it, obviously it was filled with furniture and once you take the furniture out, then all the stuff that they were hiding suddenly becomes apparent. Uh, I said it's very much like the ending of The Sting in that regard, buying a house. <laughs> The house that Matt built. <laughs> so uh, so he's going to be away for a few more weeks, but Emily has uh, kindly agreed to sit in in his stead for, for the next kind of three or four weeks or so, however long it takes for them to completely rebuild their house. It's a fine stead and I'll do my best to fill it. What can I say? So we'll go on to the news this week. And I think the big story, certainly the thing that has got everyone who cares about film and particularly uh, the awards season, was the announcement of some... Changes to the Oscars that are going to be implemented in this year's ceremony, I believe. The two big changes, one of which was they said they're going to keep to it having a three-hour runtime, and the way they're going to do that is by just not showing some of the awards. Some of the awards are going to be handed out during commercial breaks, presumably the ones for, like, short film or sound mixing and sound editing and things like that. Oh, yeah, just the Uh, sound. Never mind (laughs) the sound. 90% 90% of what a movie is. Yeah, nah. But the, the kind of the bigger change in that, that certainly you've got a lot of people talking was the announcement that they're going to introduce an entirely new Oscar called something along the lines of Best Achievement in Popular Film, which essentially is giving awards to whichever movie made a lot of money and was the best of that group, presumably. They haven't really detailed what the criteria is going to be but presumably it's going to be movies that made a lot of money and wouldn't necessarily have a shot of winning an oscar in any other situation seems to be the thing they're going for and yeah what are your thoughts on that emily i obviously i obviously have my thoughts but what are your thoughts on those changes so uh that they're, they're introducing surprise surprise ed i have many thoughts <laughs> Yep. I feel like at times I should have like a Philomena Kunk style 
<laughs> ticker that's just opinion generator. I think that's my, <laughs> my place in life. So my thoughts and opinions. It was really baffling. It felt like a spoof. It didn't mm. feel... There are two main um, sort of concerns I have, right? Because I'm, I, I couldn't hear this news and go, oh, yay, that's what the Oscars needs. Mm. It kind of reminded me of like when, uh, you know, Jack on Twitter was talking about possibly having like an edit button and everyone's just saying, okay, cool, we just want to get rid of the Nazis on this platform. Oh, great, mm. look, here's, here's, a, here's a new upgrade. Download the new uh, the new version. Oh no, Nazis are still here. Great. It seems like I don't know who they vetted. I don't know who brought this up at what meeting. But it I kind it kind of again on Twitter, someone brilliantly said in response to this news, just a gif of John Hamm as Don Draper in mm-hmm. Mad Men, where he says to Peggy, "That's what the money is for." That's yep. kind of how I feel. Like you know, the market is there to reflect certain areas of popularity right and that and that gets quite confusing when you look about genres and but i don't really see what the oscars is doing in terms of popularity they're bringing in the public to some degree right because surely that's remarking upon the dollar and that's Mm. and, and and it's award for whoever won the market i can't really see how else it is that way but popular as a term, sort of, it kind of implies, right? Tell me if I'm going nuts here because I'm just going down a semantic rabbit hole. Popular implies most liked, mm. right? And I don't see why the Oscars are doing that, mainly because not that long ago, the voting me- mechanisms behind Best Picture changed, which mm. meant that the more people who voted for a film, instead of, it kind of became... I'm going to really hack-handedly explain it as best as I can. Hold on to your hats, everyone. Instead of people just voting like, this is the best picture, it then became a more kind of alternative voting system where it's like, well, if that picture didn't win best picture, then this is my fourth favourite and so on. Mm. Which meant that it seemed to some fairer because more members of the Academy agreed on what the best picture was. But then as soon as that happened, you started to see a return to films like The Artist or, well, for a brief, <laughs> for a brief flash in the pan, uh, La La Land. But Argo as well, generally films about filmmaking started to get further ahead in the best picture race because the one thing that the Academy can all kind of agree on is that they are all in the business. They're all responding to films that respond to their experience in the business in that way. Now... Mm. To me, that is what the popular kids think is popular, which is why I was so heartened that Moonlight won and stuff like The Shape of Water, which I still haven't seen, but again, looks pretty out there and Moonlight, you know, seemingly so specific and dismissed on every sort of racial and classist level as, uh, as too difficult to make then came out top, which was which was beautiful. And the meta-narrative of that whole film is incredibly heartening. But mm. I just don't understand. Who is asking for this? Are the Oscars trying to seem relevant? Are they trying to bring in, like, the quote-unquote youth? Like, I mean, 
I love, don't get me wrong, I love the MTV Movie Awards. That is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Best Kiss was like the, the, the real award, right? Never mind Best Kiss, yeah. like Best Movie. Best Kiss was where it was at. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just confused because if the Oscars wants to remain as being essentially an academy of people within that industry, recognising critically from, from some perspective, critically your peers... Why would most popular film come into it? I'm confused. So those are my very confused thoughts, Ed. What about you? Well, in terms of who is calling for this, there were several articles which said that this was enforced or uh, maybe vigorously suggested by ABC, who air the Oscar telecast. So therefore, it was asked for by someone at Disney. The network. Yes, so they basically have said the Oscars don't get as good ratings as they do as they used to, which is, and their their thinking is because you don't recognise movies that people have actually seen. And I would say that's flawed logic and doesn't take into account, you know, seismic changes in how people watch TV, which is that nothing gets the same ratings that it ever did before. Like the Oscars may not get the tens of millions of viewers that it got in the 80s and 90s, but it still is one of the most watched television events of the year but it's not as big as it used to be so abc who obviously have a vested interest in this stuff have said well what you need to do is you need to award popular movies so that you know you can i don't know get all of these people who went to see avengers infinity war to watch the movie to watch the oscars to see if it wins an award for best popular movie and to me that seems self-defeating because it's not like the Oscars never nominate popular movies. Like there are some years where you'll the the the, the highest grossing movie will be I don't know the Reader or something, <laughs> which is like a movie that gets like fifty or sixty million and hardly anyone has seen. Including Hugh Jackman. That's one of my favourite Oscars <laughs> moments in the opening <laughs> opening theme, where he just bounces on with those people in mirrorball suits and just says i haven't seen the reader yet i'm sorry <laughs> but like last year you had dunkirk which earned 170 million dollars and get out earned 175 million dollars those are both you know sizable hits when they were nominated you only have to go back a few more years before that to see when avatar the highest grossing film of all time at the, at the, the time of the ceremony was nominated for Best Picture and a slew of awards. So it's not like they... And the same year also you had The Blind Side, which was a huge hit. Gravity was nominated a few years ago, which was a huge hit. So it's not like they never nominate popular movies. It's that they seem to think you never nominate blockbusters. And the problem with that is that, you know, there are good blockbusters out there, certainly, and there are movies that... I would say our blockbusters and deserve to be in the consideration for serious awards at the end of the year, which don't because there is, you know, there is, there is an elitist bias against popcorn cinema in general, but a lot of them aren't good enough and that's why they don't get nominated. So having this seems to be this, this new award seems very condescending because it means that they're saying, Oh, these are the movies that aren't good enough to get nominated for best picture, but we're going to throw them a bone but also it runs the risk of precluding the really great blockbusters from being nominated for Best Picture because that's what happens with the great animated movies, the great documentaries, the great 
foreign language movies. You know, very, very occasionally you'll see an animated movie get nominated for Best Picture and in the long distant past when Fellini was making movies uh, and when Bergman was making movies, you would see a foreign language film get nominated for Best Picture. But for the most part, there's no overlap. And this seems like you could end up with a situation where clearly in a panic that, you know, something like Black Panther isn't going, isn't going to get nominated for Best Picture, they're introducing something where they said, okay, well, at least it's going to get nominated for something that we can pretend isn't a major, a major award. But in the process, that means that people won't nominate it for Best Picture because they think, oh, it'll get nominated for that. Which, again, I think bringing up Black Panther, I think is really interesting. And there probably has been as granular a conversation as that as like, oh, God, if we don't include Black Panther in this somehow, we're going to really push ourselves out of the current conversation, which mm. or set themselves back in terms of what they've already tried to do in terms of diversity, because all, all things considered, the Best Picture nominees last year were much different and, and more interesting than they have been for a long time. The thing that gets me is like, who's going, oh, boo-hoo, poor Avengers Infinity War. No one's, no one's <laughs> noticed you. There's not enough content about you. And then, you know, if, if Black Panther is specifically the one that they're concerned about, then that's just virtue signaling and you're not actually doing anything to really address the root problem of, of inequality and discrimination. Like, yes, the Academy's made steps in inviting a lot more members that it should have done a long time ago. But also, I think if you are concerned about an audience, as ABC seems to be in terms of like, oh, bring them in with this way, because they'll just want to see the bits of the same film they've seen over and over again in different ways. If you're really concerned, you look at the BAFTAs over here, for example, they have the EE Rising Star Award, which is an audience Mm. voted award. And I think it's a really interesting and nice way of gauging where five... I think it's five a category of five if i remember correctly yeah. actors and there's something quite exciting i think james mcavoy won it in the past i think daniel kaluuya won it last year and did the most mm. beautiful impassioned speech about arts funding in the uk that's how you bring in an audience because that's truly oh god who is gonna win because we voted for it no one in that room knows none of none of the um british academy has any idea that's exciting that i'll tune in for mm. and if you're concerned about the ceremony going too long, you don't need to hide awards going to largely anonymous craftsmen who will never ever be on a stage like that and with an audience like that in their lives. What you can do is cut out bullshit of a load of people going into a theatre and firing, firing hot dogs into a crowd of people who were just trying to watch A Wrinkle in Time. Oh my God, you know? selfies and maybe we don't have to have a performance of one of the nominees of Best Original Song in full. Don't mm. be wrong, I love a bit of ceremony, I love a party, but the Oscars seems to have a complete identity crisis just now in terms of like, are we entertainment for the masses? Like, are we an academy... Is there a decent line, you know, a middle ground that we can find? Because I'm so scared of coming off as sounding like elitist or uh, because I am thoroughly not. But I think the Academy has always presented itself with this certain esteem. So where's it going to go? Yeah, it's they are trying to deal with genuine problems, I think, with how the academy like voting body is formulated and also with just how they present themselves to the broader audience and what the purpose of the oscars are and in terms and they have taken like real strides in terms of like changing the 
composition of the membership by inviting you know record numbers of new members of wildly diverse backgrounds more diverse than they have in the past and kind of filtering out older inactive members and you know they've they've done like genuinely good things that should i think uh, explain you know why the best picture slate last year was so interesting because you suddenly have all these wildly different perspectives who are finding different things in different movies even though like it's still within the fairly restrictive circle of what an oscar movie is but then you know the shape of water winning is like such a weird fucking movie (laughs) to (laughs) win best picture it's kind of weird to think that it feels like when it was announced i think oh yeah that feels like the safe choice in my heart, I really wish that uh, Guillermo del Toro just shuffled in and was like, I have an idea for a film. It's Splash in the Cold War. And someone went, yes, sold. <laughs> but, you know, this seems, in terms of the, the actions they could be taking, feels weird and ill-thought-out and ill-considered and counterproductive. And uh, I, I maybe, you know, it will come to February of next year. And also they're moving the ceremony up to an earlier point in the calendar, which uh, I don't have stronger feelings about, you know, compared to the other two changes, but it does seem like it will disadvantage a lot of people who don't live in kind of LA and New York and the the main markets that get these movies because they tend to expand slowly. And if, you know, you're just... And this change may force studios just to focus on, you know, the, the main media markets where Academy members live. But but yeah, it, it does seem like all these changes are weird and strange and ill thought out. Maybe but, but you know, maybe it will come to January of next year when the ceremony is held and it'll be watched by seventy million people and be like, Well, I guess it worked. But uh I, I'm skeptical about that possibility. Yeah, let's be skeptical. Let's send some side eye the Academy's way. Mm-hmm. So going on from the Oscars, which of course is televised ceremony we're going to be talking about the times when television takes risks in this week episode and that's been inspired largely by news that came out of the tca critics tour this week the crazy ex-girlfriend to show that you and i both both love uh, and matt as well you know we all did a, an episode on it uh, a couple of months back if people want to go back and check that out have announced that they are going to be recasting the character of Greg, who was originally played on the show by Santino Fontana and is going to now be played by Skylar Astin, who I think people are probably most familiar with from his work on the Pitch Perfect movies. And what's interesting here is that the show, they're they're recasting him not because of any kind of, you know, the usual reasons for why a character gets recast, which is like an actor passes away, or in the case of someone like, you know, a Michael Pitt who famously was so awful had to work with on Hannibal that once his character became horribly disfigured, they just recast him with a different actor because it was really easy to when you're just putting someone under a load of makeup. It's not because uh, Santino Fontana was in any way difficult to work with. The, the change has been very amicable by all accounts. It's because the final season of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, one of the themes they want to explore is the notion that people can change over time and that people's perceptions of people can change over time and so to literalize that theme they are taking a character who left the show several years ago and bringing them back but replacing them with a different actor and that obviously is a a kind of a big swing to take for a show that's already used to kind of doing things that are very big and bold and adventurous by its very nature and so we just wanted to talk about examples of tv shows 
taking big risks, you know, either formally or narratively or in terms of, of style and instances where that really paid off for a show and maybe, you know, instances where shows tried it and it just fell flat for, for us. The other reason that people might know Skylar Astin is that uh, he is Mr. Anna Camp. I think they met ah, on Pitch yeah. Perfect and, and got married and I, I followed them both on Instagram and, and they are they are too in love. Like, I'm happy <laughs> for them, but suspicious. But then I am a, a horrible, cynical little bean. <laughs> it's a golden age of good couples, I feel like we're in now. Um, Dak Shepard and Kristen Bell seem really good. Honestly, yeah. Ed, if anything happens to them, <laughs> I, I, it's not worth it's not worth thinking about. The thing about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and I won't go and launch into exactly everything we said on, on the last podcast, the episode which we did uh, with, uh, with Matthew, which mainly did just end up with us dissolving into fits of laughter as we just quoted the songs, which is lovely. Uh, and, I, and I hope they, they took it in the spirit that was intended after all of our well-meant criticism. It is a show that I love dearly. And I think what's interesting is that it managed to pretty much quite clearly from the off set what its episodes were like you you mm. um i think it was a, a review of atlanta actually now that's a show that really plays with it, what it's doing mm. i remember reading a review of the first season of atlanta i haven't seen the second season yet i'm desperate to but the first season this review said really the first season of a show should not only just entertain you and introduce you to everyone but it should also instruct you on how to watch the show Mm. and what to expect and it was interesting because this review was essentially saying I'm still not quite sure how I'm meant to watch it but then I thought maybe that's part of the reason why I love Atlanta I literally don't know what's going to happen from episode to episode because it started off relatively steadily and, and, and you had these narrative episodes they had they had their own little arcs and a, and a wider arc which you sort of expect and then my favorite episode of that series is where Donald Glover's client the the rapper Paperboy ends up on a chat show that he shouldn't really be on and you just mm -hmm. sit there and watch the entirety of this chat show which feels like elements of it feel like an extended tim and eric sketch yeah and then we don't return to it we just leave it no one really refers to it again and i like that i like that boldness and that sort of strange sketchiness some people didn't like it but then again i think donald glover is an artist just now in every element of everything that he does because he's just so ridiculously talented uh he he is more about wanting to take risks but not provocation for the sake of it so i can get on board with that but that's the interesting thing about crazy ex-girlfriend i'm so excited to see i think it's a really brilliant stroke of genius from a show that is continually doing really interesting stuff not just in terms of looking at themes that aren't really discussed much including you know most prominently i suppose borderline personality disorder Mm -hmm. But now playing with the form as well is really exciting. And I mean, yes, in, in towards the end of last series, we knew that there were musical numbers, but I liked that there were puppet cats as well. <laughs> Again, another thing that's probably quite obvious about me. Um, mm -hmm. I was thinking about this and, and thinking about, like you said, particular episodes that really kind of stuck with us in terms of, of taking, a, taking a change in gear. And none of mine are from the past five years easily mm. because i think now that we're in peak tv we do seem to have this almost like factory produced because we are sort of slipping back into certain like studios making yeah. certain things and netflix is absolutely ripe for a crime procedural spoof because you know you can just list 
I was like, am I watching Fargo? Am I watching Ozark? Am I watching The Sinner? They're all so kind of the same. And so it's hard to find something that really stands out in drama in particular. Mm. But in terms of things that have really surprised me or excited me, particularly formally, it's more in comedy, like stuff like Adult Swim, like I said, Tim and Eric, the Eric Andre show. And I yeah. don't know if that's because comedy, your audience is already, you know, comedy is all about setting expectations and then breaking them in some way. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. But I also think part of it is that comedy by its very nature, and this also I think definitely applies to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend as well being a musical, is they, by their very nature, have a very thin grasp on their own reality or a very thin connection to their own reality. There's an elasticity there which allows the creators to kind of play around a little bit. You definitely see that with Atlanta, which formally is, you know, except for that um, BAN episode, where, which is the one with the talk show, where it breaks from the usual style and takes on a kind of a public access sketch quality to it where there's little adverts and animations and things kind of sprinkled in to break it up and and it's very different but largely that show has a visual style that remains consistent which is why when it veers into different genres in some way or or becomes kind of strange and surreal particularly in the second season there's a episode that's pretty much just an out and out horror movie which is really really cool and effective I, th- I think comedy is because of the fact that you're pursuing a joke at, uh, at pr- is kind of like the end point for everything you're trying to do that gives you more license to do things that you know are strange and and I, and I think that comedy is the area of peak tv that has really benefited the most because what you have seen over the last sort of five ten years is a lot of people who 10 years ago would not have gotten a show are now getting the opportunities. You look at something like Andy Daly's show review, you look at comedy bang, bang, you know, the, the fact that Scott Ockerman got to make 110 episodes of a weird hybrid sketch talk show where the celebrities come in playing themselves, but then also get roped into weird space adventures every so often. <laughs> like the fact that they can do that is a, is a sign of, of the sort of lassitude that they're willing to give someone who can make something cheaply, which is another thing as well. Like com- there aren't that many comedy shows that are kind of real budget busters in the way that you, you see with a lot of dramas. I think that that's a big part of it. Nathan for you would be another one as well. I think I love Nathan for you. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a show like review as well. That comes with such a weird tone and specificity to it. And it's, it's so clearly, the work of someone with a unique vision in a way and also you know like they're not necessarily serialized either which i think is a problem that has hindered a lot of dramas you know like the 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 advent of binge watching has not only changed how people watch tv but also to an extent has changed how people make tv as well i think you can see that in the broader devaluing of the idea of individual episodes because they assume certainly netflix do they just assume people are going to watch it all in like two sittings and therefore you don't need to craft an individual episode to really grab people's attention in the way that you know like shows that were influential and vital in 
inspiring this run of oh this kind of like golden age of television like the sopranos you know that which were and you know like the sopranos was one that felt like each episode was a distinct short story and even if there was an, a larger arc going on in the background you could point to something like the test dream where most of it takes place in a dream and Annette Benning shows up as herself uh, which is still one of my favorite moments in television ever where Tony Soprano is just at dinner and he just leans over and says are you Annette Benning?" <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, which is just like a great illustration of, of, of how dreams feel and work or a episode that I love even though it's incredibly hard to watch uh the episode college which is where or is it university there's there's two episodes that both have like synonymous names but <laughs> it's the it's the one where the perspective is from the point of view of a stripper working at the bada bing and all of the characters on the show are viewed from her perspective and suddenly you remember oh yeah all these people are awful like silvio may be kind of like charming and funny when he when he's around tony but when tony's not around he's just as you know bad as ralphie but because tony doesn't like ralphie and we're usually seeing from his perspective you know we view him as more of a villain when he and silvio both have their flaws and i think that kind of experimentation is not completely absent from drama but it certainly over the last few years feels like in in the the push for as you say like a factory produced quality has kind of been bred out of it a little bit and, and netflix's dramas in particular so from this if you look at like all of their marvel shows which are all three episodes too long for the story that they're trying to tell because they got it in the head that you have to make a season of a show that's 10 episodes long or 13 episodes long and each one has to be an hour regardless of how much story you have to fill that time which is odd because netflix is the reason why that is no longer why that's now defunct really because mm. that was something that you did in terms of seasons of, of tv and yet maybe they're still trying to adhere to it because of some sort of esteem it's funny though that you mentioned the sopranos because i do think that it's the sopranos to me is a televised novel and each episode is a chapter and they're beautifully formed and there's a reason that that chapter starts there and there's a reason that it ends there and it becomes part of this greater whole and you know you can you can scream through a book if it's really great if you like it or you can put your bookmark in and then it's fine and I think that's what peak tv is sort of losing formally in terms of drama now is that each episode is not really considered a chapter it's funny that actually the good place stepping away from out and out drama for a second but each episode is a chapter and it says that. So I think that's quite interesting that it's sort of, you know, the book of Michael Schur, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. The thing about The Sopranos as well is that there was just so much less competition at that at that time. You didn't have the same kind of like streaming. You, you had cable and you, and you had terrestrial, but you didn't have anywhere near as many uh, channels. So it was easier to sort of pioneer and, and stand out. And there's a brilliant book, mm. Difficult Men, which focuses on these the beginning of these kind of like esteem series and particularly in drama that are often um, headed up by men who are anti-heroes or um, dealing with various different aspects of sort of crisis of masculinity. But the weird thing is, is that I feel that we're still just seeing that still now, again, mm. everywhere. Yeah, you just uh, remind me of uh, The Sinner, which is a show that I've just started watching and I do really, really like. I think it's particularly... You know the the, the fact they got Anthony Camp Antonio Campos to direct the first three episodes and give he gives it the kind of the same eerie style that you see in you know his movies you know Simon Killer and Christine and things like that. I think 
that that's a really good show. But as soon as it introduced like, oh, Bill Pullman's marriage is in trouble and he's in this dom sub relationship with this this woman and, and you know, he seems racked by guilt with it. And I thought, this this feels like the one part of the show that feels like it's retreading ground that television has covered a lot like not every detective needs to be troubled uh like there is room for them to be i don't know just people doing their job and interested in trying to figure out why this woman stabbed this guy to death on a beach i would really like to see this in it actually funny enough because i do love bill pullman i think jessica beale is really interesting i think i just i struggle particularly with procedural drama because it's, it's always leading to some kind of twist that then I think feels really contrived. and It's meant to be something that you ha- mm. didn't necessarily see before. I think I love a really good red herring. There is nothing more satisfying, but I haven't seen that a lot recently. So I'd love to see a bit more ingenuity because I think there is, there is a lot of room for it going forward. And it's amazing when you end up watching stuff in, from uh, several years ago that ends up feeling like fresher somehow. I think because there were several different factors that worked together that made people more able to take risks, I think. I mean, for me, I guess the major one that really yeah. stuck with me from an early age is just several episodes of Buffy. Yeah, if you look at like some of the really formally adventurous episodes of that show, you know, like the most famous one is like something like Once More Feeling, the the musical episode, which is really, you know, the, this real break from form and and is the sort of thing that clearly a show that at that point you know was successful enough so like could try anything would be willing to go kind of really big in that way yeah there was a kind of a refreshing idea of not necessarily resting on its laurels but i think there's also a certain element of like hey mm. we've done the first couple of series we've established an audience we're pretty popular and i think there's something I will always really admire, which is where if you just decide to just go for it. And I think, I can't remember which came first, but I think the episode that I really remember is The Body. Yeah, The, the Body is one that I always think of. And uh, the, the Zeppo uh, is another kind of like really, really great one. You know, two examples of the show really playing not just with the style, but you know the entire basic structure of how the show is meant to work. For people who don't know what what those episodes are, the body was the episode where spoilers for a show that's that's fairly old at this point, but where Buffy's mother Joyce dies and she dies at the start of the episode, and the whole episode of the show is presented in this very very stark style that you know doesn't have any of the heightened emotional or stylistic aesthetic touches that the show usually has it doesn't have any supernatural elements apart from the very very end of the episode and it's just this very heartfelt and unsparing depiction of all of the various characters reaction to a very real death that wasn't caused by you know a demon or a spell or something it's just she had a an aneurysm i think uh is is the the cause you know it's just some some you know health thing that just kills her and then everyone kind of has to deal with it and it's a very striking and difficult episode to watch certainly whenever i rewatch buffy it's the one that i uh i i I always watch it because it's incredibly cathartic and you know certainly anyone who's ever suffered any kind of loss i think it it really rings true as a depiction of grief but 
it's also it's such it's one that I dread because I'm like, oh, you're really going to get put through the ringer here. Mm. Uh, and then the Zeppo is another one that really played with the format of the show, where, but but in a kind of a more clever narrative way, which was that the typical A story B story structure of the show is completely inverted, and you think, oh. Buffy and the whole crew are going off to fight some world-ending demon. That's going to be the the, the centre of the show. Xander is off on his own, but then very quickly realise, oh no, the whole show is just going to follow Xander and the rest of the cast are going to be in the background doing something else. And what he's doing is actually important. And it's an incredibly clever, knowing, playing with the form of how we experience TV and what we expect from the kind of episodic episodic television that Buffy in many ways, was the peak form of. And, you know, other episodes in Buffy, because it it would be really interesting to actually go back and look at where these episodes fall in the season runs, because I also remember, you know, there's Once More With Feeling, which is the musical episode, which I think mm. a lot of people look back to and are like, oh, my God, like, you know, that's that's a real sort of linchpin for most people. But then I also yeah. remember the episode where Buffy seems to be slipping in and out of a of dimensions or like in, because she wakes up in a in a hospital bed and her mum and her dad are there and they say mm. no please come back from Sunnydale don't don't go back and everyone in Sunnydale is saying well it's this demon that's manipulating you because if you if you go there then we're all stuffed Buffy decides to stay but then we end the episode back in the hospital where she seems to have slipped into some kind of coma um, mm-hmm. or vegetative state and her parents are distraught by her bedside and that's the end of the episode and I was like oh okay cool cheers yeah thanks for that but it's great because it managed to sprinkle in a little bit of a different angle you know she's still in Sunnydale that's mm. just enough of a oh but it is all of this real yeah I think I think what that I think demonstrates in a lot of ways is how there's so much freedom to experiment when you're working in the fantasy and sci-fi genre where you can Buffy because everything is magic and demons. It's like, oh, we'll do something like really, really crazy and strange, and people will go with it because it's a show where crazy, strange things happen all the time. And either that that Asylum episode li- literally haunts me to this day <laughs> because, yeah. uh, like, one of my like, what well, the first time I saw it, it really articulated like a fear that I had often had but never been able to articulate which was like what if none of this is real and i'm just in an asylum somewhere and like the notion of the world not being as we perceive it is something that i find very you know very disturbing and like as a kid watching that it's just that that just became something i became obsessed with for for a while and whenever i watch it i do think yeah there's some there's, it feels like something to this like some, all of this stuff could just melt away and i'm in some some white room somewhere I mean, I am literally in a white room now. But that's, <laughs> that's some. That's some. That's another. That's another point. Uh, and, and another good one was an episode called Superstar, which is the one where I forget. I always get the nerds mixed up. It's not Andrew. Are you thinking of the Troika? The Troika, yeah. It, it, uh, it, wh- wh- who is the, the 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 Danny Strong character? The one who oh. the, the, the smaller one who ends up getting stabbed. The one who, the one who in real life also is like one of the exec producers an, of Empire. Yeah, an acclaimed and multiple Emmy-winning screenwriter. Yeah, they can Google uh, at home, Ed. It's fine. Go with your yeah, Danny Strong's character in Danny Strong's <laughs> character in in Buffy. Uh, he discovers a uh, a spell or an amulet or you know whichever usual MacGuffin there is in in Buffy, which allows him to rewrite the rules of reality so that he's the star of the show. 
and he becomes like the one who saves the day for everyone and he is like world famous everything and suddenly the entire world revolves around him and the show does a really fun thing of kind of playing that by having him i believe i think they redo the opening credits so that he's constantly appearing in it (laughs) as well so that he's suddenly not merely in the world of the show is he this impossibly famous demon fighter who everyone is absolutely in love with and adores but the show itself kind of restructures itself so that he is the the key figure uh and, and that was one i always really really liked as you know just the show playing with its world but also its form in a really fascinating way and you see that a lot in um animation as well like that immediately just mm. made me think of mr poopy butthole in rick and morty and yeah. uh bojack horseman i think has been one of the major series that has really embraced and run with with doing different episodes like they had their jacques tati inspired underwater episode yes. um which was really great and then these really other really beautiful ones i think you know times arrow is one of the most moving bits of tv i've ever seen but again bojack horseman hasn't like you know those episodes really stand out but it's not like every episode of bojack horseman has like a really specific format that you can that you Mm. can tell i think in the same way that when you're watching something sci-fi or fantasy like buffy or doctor who you're already um as long as you adhere to some rules Stephen moffat people are generally willing to go with you and accept different situations and, and formats because they've already implicitly agreed to it to a certain point. And say with animation, you know, what you're looking at is a, is a very, very created world and you're that much more aware of its, um, its construction. But it's things like, I think the episode that I'm kind of, in terms of catharsis that I'm sort of circling around a bit is definitely, I know I mentioned it when we were talking uh, last episode about rewatching things, but Six Feet Under is my Bible. And I remember mm-hmm. watching it, staying up late to watch it on, on Channel 4 when I could catch it. And that's such a, like, like such an ingrained memory in me. And it came to season four, was being broadcast on Channel 4. And... Six Feet Under, for anyone who hasn't watched it, has a very clear structure in terms of its format every episode. You begin with the most literal rendition of a cold opening where someone dies and this Mm -hmm. person will be integral. They're typically the deceased who the Fisher's family funeral home business centres around that's normally their uh, intake and sort of is an inciting instant for everything else that happens in the episode. And then you'll have your classic kind of soapy drama few people having a conversation in a room, someone discovering something, going back to a different room, another room, another room. But the episode, That's My Dog, starts the same yeah. way, starts exactly the same way. You have a death, you have the fishers and their wider network of family and friends and colleagues discussing things, going about their day. And then David picks up a guy in trouble on the side of the mm. road. And this very swiftly becomes dangerous. And, and David realised not only is he being carjacked well not even carjacked fridge jacked because he's in the refrigerated van picking up a body mm-hmm. but that this man actually does not want something as simple as his vehicle or his money this man is deeply disturbed and he's his life is in the hands of someone who is really not in any way thinking logically and as soon as that happens as soon as david realizes the danger that he's in we abandon everyone else there is no other storyline we follow david throughout the entire ordeal and I get shivers thinking about it now. Yeah. Because again, in that way of being able to, like you said, literalise 
this feeling that that feeling of he's so isolated and alone and we don't get the relief he doesn't get the relief so why should we and then in in the subsequent um seasons where david's dealing with the ptsd and his trust issues and and everything around that as he's trying to heal um we really feel it as well and i think it was a really powerful way to use the format of an episode to change it to bring that to the fore yeah thematically it's something very difficult but in terms of actually how it's done that really really resonated with me mm. yeah that is uh that's uh such a great episode of television that when i watched it for the first time uh i didn't watch six feet under again until the finale <laughs> because i just found it i i found it to be such a harrowing episode of television i bet alan ball just... was so happy about that everyone's switching off in their droves well done everyone yeah, yeah. Also, I kind of unrelated to this, but did you see that tweet from Adam Musa that was going around in the week where he took the footage from Super Smash Brothers of all of the characters being killed and set it to Sire's breathing? <laughs> and every time, every time a character died, you know the the screen flashed white and it said like Luigi Mario, nineteen eighty-seven to two thousand eighteen. <laughs> Ah, that's like so many of things that I love in one handy mashup. That's great. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that really made me laugh. Um, in terms of a show playing with its own structure, one that uh, I kind of became aware of in the week, or, or I became aware of this was what it was doing, was um, Cowboy Bebop, which, as I mentioned on the show last week, I've been watching and I, I finally watched the ending of after we recorded last week. and. There was a, a video uh, on the channel Criswell YouTube channel, which is a, a really good YouTube channel for kind of like dissections of visual media. And I've been wanting to watch it for a while, but I figured this is probably going to spoil a bunch of shit. So I should probably wait until <laughs> I've watched the show, uh, which I, it was the right choice because it's specifically about how the final episode of Cowboy Bebop completely inverts the traditional structure of an individual episode and the way that show was constructed and it sticks to this fairly rigidly is you know the episode starts with the the crew of the the, the bebop who are all these kind of intergalactic bounty hunters kind of waiting around they get given a bounty to check and then the whole show is about to chase after and then the whole show is about them chasing down this bounty but then also learning about the bounty and the backstory and why this person is on the run and the final episode, the, the two final episodes of Cowboy Bebop basically completely invert that and make the show about the story of its main character, Spike Spiegel, who up until that point has only been, has been kind of sort of a blank slate whose backstory has been hinted at. And I thought that was really powerful in the way that suddenly it takes the focus that always has been, okay, these people are observing these other people they're chasing and then making us essentially the observers for the final episode and watching this guy confront his past finally in a way that all the bounties in the previous episodes have been confronting their past. Uh, I think that's, it's a very tricky long game to play to basically really establish a format and then completely break with it. Uh, which is why I think a lot of shows try not to do it too much uh, or unless it's a show like Buffy or the X-Files, which do it all the time because you know, they have a, a fairly thin connection to their own reality by the very nature of their storytelling but when it works i think it can be hugely hugely effective so i think uh kind of like looking towards the the end of the episode now i thought we could maybe talk about some more 
specific examples of individual episodes we thought where we, we we really think of when we talk about shows breaking their particular format in some way that really really work for for us uh so my my first example would be the Mad Men episode the crash which is the episode where all the characters in the show are being given injections of essentially speed and because of that the whole episode has this real disynchronous rhythm to it where it completely breaks with the pacing of the show but also has all of these small surreal moments that the show would occasionally play with but in this instance there's no kind of delineation between what is reality and what is fantasy so you're like is that you know is the the character who was in a car crash at the beginning of the show really tap dancing <laughs> um, in front of Don Draper is this just all happening in his head and I, I think that that is an example of a show breaking format so well and in such a stunning way that it is for me the episode of the show that I think of when I think of Mad Men which is weird because in terms of like if you were to show someone one episode of the show to show what it was like it would be the last one you would show because it's completely out of step with what the show does or is it the first one you should show because it's actually perfect in terms of it encapsulates so much of where it could go it's like because you've still Mm. got a good cast of characters you've still got a kind of you sort of start off down a certain way i don't know i think the the episode of Mad Men that i always think that i would show someone because it was basically the first one i ever watched and i've totally forgotten the title but it's where sally goes to the city and, and she stays with don and then it ends just beautifully with her and jean on the phone mm. jean asking her how the city is and she says it's dirty because she's she's managed to be go through the ringer of, of just this mm. um and you know that's just seeing something from a, a different character's perspective it's the format is still generally um, generally the same. But I do love The Crash. I think, again, in terms of a really, like a shot in the arm for Mad Men and how this encapsulates what was going on at the time. And Mad Men did that quite a bit. Because the thing that I like about Mad Men is that it manages to make what is essentially an office soap opera incredibly gripping and significant. I love it. I know that a lot of people have kind of come back mm. to him and been like, oh God, it's really boring. I'm like, no, it's it's all about what they say and don't say. And it's incredibly repressed for being American. And I just love Jared Harris. And then <laughs> I get into a bit of a state. But the thing about Mad Men is that, you know, you've got essentially, can I get this right first time? Sterling Cooper Draper Price. Thank you. Their offices. And you have essentially just um, all these little confined spaces and people moving in and around and power and occasionally stuff in the city or at people's flats or houses and it's it's incredibly claustrophobic to me and I think that's why it's so interesting but claustrophobia is an interesting or that very that sense of being very contained and in one place because there is I think what's generally referred to as a bottle episode which is an artistic and a practical decision I think it's Mm. I I I love bottle episodes because that's often Russell T Davis I think said it perfectly when he was talking about Doctor Who where when he was negotiating in terms of the budget, he could essentially make one big episode that he ploughed loads of money into and kind of skim the money off another budget for another episode, yeah. which meant that fewer effects, fewer sets, 
but it can still be just as gripping as something as spectacular like a series finale. So you, it'll often be, you, you, you come across several of these episodes in Doctor Who where for some reason he and the crew of somewhere else are all stuck in this one contained space and it's normally in real time because you manage to then let the story run with that and that can be really fun again having these restrictions actually rather than necessarily like a complete fair game of whatever you want to play and I think the one that really strikes me out width of like fantasy and sci-fi is The Fly the Breaking Bad mm. episode where you just have Walter White and Jesse together and that feels like a play because it is a two-hander in one place and it kind of veers on like Beckett absurdity and and these strange this strange power dynamic between these two men who've been sort of thrown together um, through a mix of fate and foolishness. And I think it's such a, as much as I'm not a big fan of Breaking Bad, shoot me down, that episode really sticks with me because I think it just plays with everything that Breaking Bad had going for it in the, in the best possible terms, which is this really bizarre dynamic between two really rich and flawed characters. Mm. Uh, in in terms of shows really breaking with their format in a way, one that I, I always really like and also one that really does feel like a play is an episode of Homicide Life on the Streets called Two Men in Adina. Three Men in Adina, sorry. Which is an episode where at the end of the previous episode, two of the detectives think that they have found the man who murdered a young girl whose murder is kind of like the inciting instance of the entire first season. You know, like it's one of the first cases that this young homicide detective works and it becomes kind of his obsession for the first season. And then also it's something that crops up in in future episodes. And this whole episode is just them interrogating this one subject for pretty much the entire hour of the episode. It takes place pretty much solely inside the interrogation room with a brief kind of bits where they go outside to kind of talk about their strategy and whether or not they think it's working. And it's uh, incredibly tense and really well written. And it does feel claustrophobic because obviously it's just these three men in this one room where two of them are trying to break down this guy because they only have, you know, 20, they can only hold him for 24 hours, whatever the rule is before they have to let him go. And they, they think at several points that they're getting close to it, but then this guy also is playing with them in, in some ways and kind of flipping things back on them. And it is a hugely impactful episode of television. And in terms of like, it's a go back to the Mad Men thing of like pulling an episode that you think, okay, I would show this to someone as indicative of what the show is capable of. Uh, I really think that that one is kind of like one of the the standouts because it is just an example of how gripping the show could be when it was firing on all cylinders and also in a in a nice bit of interconnectivity or or, or uh, metatextuality Brooklyn Nine-Nine did an homage to it this past season where Jake and Captain Holt are interviewing Sterling Kane Brown for the entire episode and yeah that's a, a very clear homage because Andre, ba- Andre Brower is in both scenes, in both episodes. So it's a kind of a nice, fun thing that they did there where they called back to this really searing episode of of crime fiction television in a much lighter, funnier context. Weird that we've come around to be like, oh, that fond memory of that incredibly harrowing hour of TV I watched. But it's true, <laughs> it's great. Just just to sort of throw it in here, because I'm, I'm 
I'm wary of sounding too uh let's 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 just uh how about this question right that's kind of bubbled up into the forefront of my mind I personally think that these episodes do it very well are there any that we think just fall flat and further to that is a lot of this meta textuality stuff can it just be showing off are there are there instances where it's just a big a big no I can think of one where it wasn't kind of a deal breaker for me but I know it's a deal breaker for a lot of people and that is the Simpsons episode The Principal and the Pauper which, which is yes. the one where it is revealed that Principal Skinner is not who he says he is and that he is in fact a man named Armin Tanzarian who had taken on the persona of Seymour Skinner after the real Seymour Skinner had supposedly been killed during the war and he kind of came back and took over his life and it's never bothered me too much because like I say like I think the rules of television comedy in particular are and animation are very very loose so the fact that the Simpsons would do that in one episode doesn't really bother me but i know for a lot of fans that's that a lot of fans of the simpsons do view that as kind of you know a crossing the rubicon moment for the show from which it never recovered and and certainly the show itself seems to have a very ambivalent relationship to the memory of that episode because there is a joke many many years later they did where Lisa's cat Snowball 2 dies and she gets a replacement cat and that cat dies and then a different cat and then that cat dies and then at the end of the episode she finds a cat who looks exactly like Snowball 2 and she adopts it and then gives it the collar and says to save time we'll just call you Snowball 2 and Principal Skinner's walking by and he says isn't that a bit of a cheat Lisa and then she goes I don't know maybe it is Principal (laughs) Tanzarian and he kind of goes and then Skinner just kind of goes, good day, Lisa, terrible too, and just kind of like walks off. So which is kind of like, clearly the Simpsons acknowledging, oh yeah, that was a thing we did once, but maybe not. That that I think is pretty much the only time since then that they've not acknowledged that they did this major format change, which uh, a lot of people reacted very badly to. I think it's funny because I remember watching that episode and thinking it was just funny, but it is the episode that is absolutely central mm, to that viral video of... Uh, that viral video of uh, which is really interesting and even though i agree with the majority of it that that video essay about i've totally forgotten the youtube user's name sorry there's too many of you youtube users but the, the brilliant one that went viral in terms of why why the simpsons doesn't work anymore and that episode is absolutely fundamental to it but the funny thing is is that the simpsons has just always been so elastic in its tone i think it's definitely had a huge dip in quality over the past how many years now Christ, maybe 10 mm. but that's lots of different factors and i think it's actually because it's lost a lot of the elasticity of its tone and it's and it's veered into again what i would agree with this video essay is instead of coming from comedy coming from character it's comedy coming from a kind of um unanchored silliness which just ends up being kind of running into being quite puerile or or um generally quite predictable funnily enough actually you know the simpsons format change has from being a really uh vibrant strange anything could happen to well we know exactly what's going to happen because it's it's rooted in this kind of mix of Mm. suburbia and and randomly plucked silliness instead of actually coming from character and i think one of the darkest episodes of the simpsons is homer's rival oh no sorry homer's enemy isn't it it's lisa's Mm. rival and homer's enemy that's how i yeah 
But no, we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording. And I think one of my favourite Instagram accounts is Bad Simpsons Tattoos. And you will be <laughs> amazed the number of people that get Frank Grimes tattooed on themselves. Wow. So it struck amazing. a chord. I think just because, you know, mm. in terms of the reflexivity and the elasticity of, of shows like The Simpsons, when Grimes actually dies, you know, <laughs> he, 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 he's dead, right? You're like, oh, oh, okay, this is a world where people can die and not come back. Like, that felt quite existential. Mm, and and also, in again, to kind of go back to some of the, the previous examples, it is such a distinctive perspective shift for the show to say this episode is not going to be primarily from the perspective of Homer Simpson or any of the main characters. It's going to be from the perspective of this entirely new character we are going to be introduced to who is going to be like a real person existing in this cartoon world and being <laughs> driven insane by it because he can't he can't countenance the a world in which Homer's complete incompetence is rewarded constantly and i think that's such an amazing episode because of that i think what you say about mm. a real person being in that world and how they would deal with it they couldn't they would they would just kind of cease to be as as grimes does and of course the simpsons has done this before in terms of like being aware of of that it is a tv show and you know the introduction of poochie mm -hmm. uh, as yeah. a as a as a character desperately trying to uh, revive itself and i think that kind of self-awareness is what's lacking from it now which is what what makes me pretty sad because before it could it could still you know the 21 short stories about springfield with with the sort of pulp fiction-esque uh mm -hmm. sort of slapdash tiny tiny little stories and it's nice because obviously that's a platform for things that they were trying out in a writer's room that didn't quite become full stories but then it was like oh well we'll just smack them all together and of course treehouse of horror um yeah. which is still a yearly despite despite myself still something i look forward to every year <laughs> halloween and and again that acceptance of like oh this is this is almost simpsons fan fiction like no, nothing in treehouse of horror is ever going to come back to the actual canon um but we can just play with these characters and these situations and you know develop our love of uh, of, of horror through the simpsons uh giant giant eyes but overall i'd say like that there's very few episodes actually where i've looked at and, and gone that was a risk that you shouldn't have taken i don't know i think mm. i think it's 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 good that not to get complacent i think i'll always respect that in a in a tv creator if they try something like that to not to not rest on laurels Mm, yeah. The the only other one I could think of just that came to my mind now of, of one that didn't work, but not because it was bad in the moment, but because it just didn't lead to anything was, it must have been about seven or eight years ago at this point. Do you remember there was an episode of South Park where Stan suddenly can't have fun anymore and the world suddenly can't, starts becoming like really gray for him and like the whole thing is it's clearly parker and stone trying to work through their own issues and concerns about you know what does it mean that we've been doing this show for so long mm. and that we're we're largely unchanged and it ends it was it was the season finale and it ended with stan kind of like slowly walking around sadly to landslide by fleetwood mac <laughs> and <laughs> And it was done, like, I think fairly seriously. And I thought it was a great episode that really did seem to be them using the show to 
work through some things. But then, like, the show came back and it was its usual centrist garbage. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and when it, it did kind of, like, come back and that's all that it was, I was just like, oh, fuck this, fuck this show. <laughs> I'm not going to watch it anymore. So, but, but so that, that was one where I kind of thought, like, it was, it was not that the risk itself was not worth taking or that the risk itself was bad. Like, I think that the risk was worth taking. But the fact that it just led like that brief moment of seeming self-reflection led to absolutely nothing uh and then like became them just doing the thing they've always done that 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 to me kind of felt like a a moment to like and it was you know a moment to just kind of cut off relations with the show and just be like no this i'm not going to get anything from this show that i haven't already got (laughs) i've moved on and they seem to think that they should but they won't so i'm done with them uh, yeah, in that in that situation, Ed, it wasn't you. It was definitely them. Mm-hmm. And we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot of Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Well, I have something that is mainly for anyone who can access BBC iPlayer, and it is something that came out a little while ago um, and I realised had completely passed me by, and it is a semi-improvisational comedy called Soft Border Patrol. And Soft Boulder Patrol, I think, has a fair few people who were also involved in Scott Squad, which is brilliant and um, transcendently hilarious, uh, which kind of follows a fictionalised version of the United uh, Scottish Police Force and the very, you know, the head commissioner and the special constables and all of the people going about their day. And it's this lovely, loose style. The characters really come through. Um, they're really great um, comic characters and Soft Border Patrol works on a similar basis but its setting is on the soft border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and the slightly too manager speak for her own good head executive of the soft border upon looking at the map of the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic she looks at it and just goes oh you know it's just look at that it's all over the place (laughs) (laughs) and it's this really in a time where there is so much uncertainty and this is such a such a deeply serious issue it was wonderful because it never seemed to make light of the fact that it was such a serious issue i think it's one of the best pieces of satire i've seen in a little while uh there's six episodes i believe i've just only just watched the first but you've got it just highlights the absurdity of actually making a hard border where it's you know a, a farmer has a stream running through his field and a plank and he's being told by one of the soft border patrol officers that that could constitute illegal immigration. Um, and the farmer, you know, tells him where to stick it. But there's other lovely bits as well. And I think it's incredibly warm. I think it's a really nice way into if you're not familiar with a lot of... I think Ireland's just knocking it out of the park at the moment in, in terms of... It always has with film. Their film board is absolutely stunning in terms of how hard it works. And Derry Girls as well, Lisa McGee's recent absolute gem. Oh, and again bringing forward this idea of like this is all incredibly serious and still incredibly fresh in terms of the wounds that you're dealing with but it's handled so delicately and with such real heart that I just think there's some of the best comedies out there just now so yeah I guess sorry I've, I've kind of rumbled those into two that's Derry Girls on all four and Soft Border <laughs> Patrol on BBC iPlayer I'm always going to sneak another one in Ed I always am <laughs> cool those both sound fantastic I'm going to recommend an anime which I watched on US Netflix. So 
it's definitely on there if anyone's listening to this in the US and and maybe in in others worldwide. So so check around because it's amazing. It's called In This Corner of the World, which is a movie that came out in uh, 2016 in Japan and is one of the most kind of beautiful and gorgeous and sad and funny movies I've seen in a while. It follows a young girl who when we're introduced to her is like 13 or 14 years old growing up in Hiroshima in the mid 1930s and then it follows her life over the kind of the next decade or so and you know as that premise may suggest you know it's it's something where you're watching this girl kind of grow up and kind of get married to a guy she doesn't know and move to a different town and all the while world events are slowly encroaching on her life and so we all know that something cataclysmic is coming her way and that she's going to be at the very least adjacent to the thing when it happens and so much of the beauty and the power of the movie comes from the contrast and the tension between the first half of the movie which is all about just this this coming of age story about this young girl kind of like going out into the world and the kind of the the sad funny melancholy things that are happening in her life and our knowledge that at the end of this story a nuclear bomb is going to go off and but even before then you know like you start to see the effects of air raids on her family and and her friends and people dying and it's just it's just utterly heart-wrenching and really really sweet and but also beautiful and funny, like the the first half of it where it is just about her as a young girl growing up is, you know, really finely observed and sweet and beautiful. And just visually, it's amazing that the movie was constructed using old photos from the Hiroshima that no longer exists and like reconstructing it as close as they could based on real life images. So you get a vision of this city that, you know, doesn't exist anymore uh, and also, you know, one of, one of the plot strands throughout it is that the the main character is a really talented artist. And so at various points in the movie, what they'll do is at moments of particular distress, the art style of the movie will change to mimic her style of painting. And that's most beautifully during an air raid where all of the anti-aircraft kind of flak exploding is rendered as different coloured kind of splotches of paint as if she's kind of dabbed them with a brush uh and there's lots of little touches like that that just really make it one of the the, the most beautiful works of art i've seen in a, in a while see that sounds great because to be honest grave of the fireflies was just too cheery for me so i can't wait to have something uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you, did you... <laughs> i nearly i nearly kept a straight face on that one no that sounds <laughs> completely harrowing and brilliant if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye. Bye.